podcast is for residents to teach other residents about new things happening in the field of PMNR as well as go over current literature. Usually we have different co-hosts but today it's only me. One important note is that the views expressed in this podcast is solely that of the person presenting those views and do not represent any institutional affiliations. So uh, today I'm going to be talking about uh, post-traumatic syringo- syringomyelia, excuse me, and uh, characteristics of them. Uh, this article comes from Spinal Cord uh, in 2016, uh, so relatively recent. This is by J. Krebs, H.G. Koch, K. Hartman, and A. Frotzler. Oh, yes, and I also need a uh, name of my first segment, so I'm going to go with spine time. Uh, I know it's a little bit lame and it's probably been done uh, before, but I'm going to go with it for now. Uh, maybe I'll change it in the future. Uh, on this segment, we'll be talking about spinal cord injury and literature regarding that topic. So this study was a retros- retrospective cross-sectional study looking at the features associated with syrinx formation. So just in the way of introduction, uh, post-traumatic syringomyelia uh, is a serious complication of spinal cord injuries. It can lead to sensory changes, uh, loss of function, including loss of function above the injury level, uh, and increased spasticity. Uh, These are definitely things to look out for when uh, working with your patients as uh, changes in neurological symptoms out of the acute uh, period from a spinal cord injury may represent uh, this phenomenon. Uh, Syrinx can happen in greater than 50% of patients, although somewhere in the range of less than 1% to 7% of patients actually have clinical manifestation of uh, their syrinx. So to emphasize this point, the majority of syrinx that you see on imaging do not have any clinical manifestations. Syrinx can form anywhere between two months following the injury up to decades later. The pathogenesis of this injury is unclear, but likely has to do with the interruption of CSF flow. Some key points, points. the most common presenting symptom is pain, and the earliest sign is ascending loss of deep tendon reflexes. Let me say that again. The earliest... Uh, sign is the ascending loss of deep tendon re- reflexes. I believe I've seen that on old SAEs, so it's definitely something uh, to keep in mind. Ascending sensory loss is also common, and weakness can occur, but usually it's in addition to these other symptoms. The gold standard for diagnosis is MRI with gadolinium. Treatments include symptomatic treatment, as well as possibly having to undergo surgery, including shunting, followed by reconstruction of the subarachnoid space This tends to help with strength and pain, although it's not usually as effective for sensory recovery. Recurrence of symptoms is also common. And I appreciate uh, Cucurella for some of those uh, key points there. So in this article, they wanted to further clarify 
the characteristics of post-traumatic symptomatic syringomyelia after spinal cord injury. They looked at a database going back 10 years at their large SCI rehabilitation center in Switzerland. Excluding those patients with non-traumatic spinal cord injuries and seals, they had a database uh, consisting of 138 patients, which were analyzed. Syrinx occurred at a median of 15 years after their spinal cord injury. The median age at the time of the spinal cord injury was 42 years. The most common locations were the cervical thoracic spine with 42% of patients, or the thoracic spine with 36% of patients. 19%, or excuse me, 14% occurred in the cervical spine, and about 4% occurred in the thoracolumbar spine. And there were actually two patients where the syrinx stretched from the cervical to the lumbar spine. The median syrinx length was seven vertebral bodies. The direction of extension was cranial in 14% of patients and caudal in 29% of patients. Most patients, 56.8%, had extension in both directions. They tended to extend further in the caudal direction, a medium, median of eight vertebral levels, while extending only three in the caudal direction. Injury severity as well as age were significant predictors of early, less than five years after their spinal cord injury, syrinx formation. Of the syrinxes that occurred in those with complete injuries, about one-third happened early, less than five years, compared to only about 3% of the syrinxes that occurred in those with incomplete injuries. In terms of age, of those patients that had a syrinx that occurred greater than age 30, 43 to 53% of those occurred early, while in those ages 12 to 30, only 15% occurred early. Age, injury level, injury severity, and syrinx location did not have any effect on cranial syrinx progression or syrinx length. The most common uh, presenting symptoms included deterioration of motor and sensory function and pain, followed by increased spasticity, and dysesthesias. Other presenting symptoms that were rarely seen included hyperhidrosis, dizziness, and deterioration of bladder function. So to review all the different points brought up in this article, those with syrinx formation early, within five years, tended to be more complete in their spinal cord injury. Although I think this is an interesting thing to keep in the back of your mind, the fact that we don't have any data regarding the total patient population makes this somewhat difficult to interpret. Of note, previous studies have shown that those with complete spinal cord injuries are more likely to have syringomyelia. This is hypothesized to be due to uh, the greater impairment of the CSF flow in those with injuries severe enough to cause complete injuries, which uh, I think is a good way to think about it. It makes sense to me. Uh, another thing to keep in mind uh, is age. In those older than 45, the median age until syringe formation was 3.5 years. In those ages 31 through 45, it was five years. In those less than 30, the median time until syringe formation was 17 years. So uh, in your practice, when you have an older patient, uh, you should likely have a higher index, index of suspicion of syringomyelia 
earlier than you necessarily necessarily would in a younger patient. Age, injury level, and severity did not have any effect on syrinx extension cranial or syrinx length. So the way I would think about interpreting this would be that no matter how severe this spinal cord injury is, you should always have concern for the cranial uh, extension or a long syrinx in your patient. The uh, authors conclude that individuals with motor and sensory complete spinal cord injuries aged greater than 30 are at high risk of early syrinx formation and should be screened by MRI for syringomyelia, although they don't have any specific recommendations on how these screening procedures should be conducted or exactly when. So my overall uh, major concern about this article is that we don't have a great sense of uh, their overall spinal cord injury population. Uh, if they only see, or the majority of patients they see are complete injuries, then some of their conclusions, such that patients with motor and uh, sensory complete spinal cord injuries uh, need to be screened, I don't think really hold water. Uh, so, you know, what I would like to see from this article uh, would be some more information over their overall patient demographics that they see at their spinal cord injury center. Uh, perhaps those that they see at follow-up are more likely to have complete injuries. I feel that could uh, provide some valuable context for this article. So I hope that was a nice uh, quick review of syringomyelia and uh, this uh, interesting article uh, in spinal cord. Uh, as it's clear, we still need uh, more information uh, about this topic, including uh, pathogenesis, possibly prevention, as well as more information to help identify those patients at highest risk. Uh, although this article can give us some clues and may help us with our index of suspicion with patients. Okay, so now for the uh, fun part. Uh, for this uh, segment, I'm going to call it uh, PM&R movie reviews. Uh, that's kind of lame. Hold on. Let me think. Mm, how about physiatry flicks? I like that better. We'll call this physiatry flicks. And what I'm going to do is review old movies and then discuss one element of physical medicine and rehabilitation that can be kind of applied or in some way is related to the content of the film. So the movie I will be reviewing today is a film directed by David Ellis from 2006 called Snakes on a Plane. Uh, it stars Samuel Jackson as FBI agent Flynn, who has to help Nate Jones, who has witnessed a murder, uh, fly to L.A. to testify in federal court. During his flight, um, unfortunately, it gets attacked by a whole host of snakes. Uh, these snakes were put on the plane by the mob boss who uh, Nate Jones was going to testify against. Uh, they have been amped up to be super aggressive by uh, some pheromones that were placed on the lays that uh, all the passengers got when they boarded the plane to fly back to the States. Uh, the snakes came in all different shapes and sizes. Uh, there were little um, poisonous snakes and big anacondas and pretty much everything in between. Um, the people on the, on the plane uh, 
get unfortunately killed by these snakes in a whole variety of methods. Um, some of them quite uh, gruesome and some of them quite comical. Uh, Samuel L. Jackson in this film is at his most Samuel L. Jackson. Uh, he's uh, really quenching the fans' thirst for catchphrases and um, just kind of his overall Samuel L. Jackson mystique. The passengers have to uh, band together uh, to fight the snakes, and I, I won't um, give away any spoilers in terms of what happens. Uh, overall, I highly recommend this movie. It is hilarious. Um, it's just a lot of fun. Uh, there's a lot of surprises. Uh, you f see things that snakes do that yeah, you ne never would expect. Um, it's uh, it, it really borders on the li fine line between spoof and actual action movie. I think it does it intentionally. I think it wants you to think that it takes itself uh, very seriously, but things like overt product placement, uh, very stereotypical characters, uh, and just uh, the overall ridiculousness of this movie uh, make it a uh, wild and fun time. So if you haven't seen it, it's on HBO uh, on demand uh, currently, and um, I'm sure you can get it pretty cheap uh, on iTunes or any of those other uh, movie-watching uh, sites. Uh, so uh, to make this uh, related to uh, PM&R, I found one article discussing a case of a Guillain-Barre syndrome following a Formosan crate, K-R-A-I-T, bite, uh, this has never actually been reported before. Uh, these snakes are found on the island of Taiwan. Uh, this was EMG confirmed. Generally, the Ferrasman uh, crate uh, causes uh, life-threatening respiratory failure and flaccid paralysis due to two types of neurotoxins that is contained in its venom. The mortality rate has been reported to be up to 23%. Uh, the second case I'll discuss um, comes from Turkey. Uh, in this case, a patient was bitten by a snake. Uh, unfortunately, the specific type of snake in this case was unknown. Um, this patient uh, did have some swelling and pain uh, in the arm of uh, that he was bitten in. Uh, he went to an emergency department but did not receive any antitoxin. Uh, he later ended up developing significant CRPS, Complex Regional Pain Syndrome. Uh, this fit the Modified International Association for the Study of Pain uh, Diagnostic Criteria, as well as radiologic evidence of the CRPS as well. As you're probably aware, CRPS can uh, have quite the impact on quality of life as it seemed to have had in the patient in this case. Um, so... For the so say that you were a uh, physician taking care of some of the patients who had returned from this uh, snakes on a plane ordeal, um, things that uh, you could be concerned about or looking out for would be CRPS and Guillain-Barre syndrome. Uh, so that concludes uh, the podcast today. Uh, I hope they end up making a sequel uh, called uh, Snakes on a Train. I would definitely love to see that so uh, as always uh, there will be a poll posted on uh, pegboard.com 
you can just search for physical medicine and rehabilitation or PMNR on that website. Uh, and the poll uh, this week will be, would you be interested in a sequel to uh, Snakes on a Plane called Snakes on a Train? Uh, oh, wait. Uh, I just looked, and there turns out that there has actually already been a movie called Snakes on a Train. But I think uh, it's completely unrelated to the first one. So we'll just say sequel, and we'll uh, eliminate anything about Snakes on a Train, because I think that's already been done. Uh, with a straight-to-home video movie. Uh, the, la the results from our last poll uh, show Ohio State uh, with a small lead over Michigan for the greatest rivalry in sports. Uh, so go ahead and vote for that one as well uh, if you haven't yet. As always, we're always looking for people to help us out uh, in any capacity, whether that's you know, social media, uh, editing, or hosting your own segment on this podcast. Uh, you can reach us at pmrblast at gmail.com. Please, uh, if you enjoy what you're listening to, rate us on iTunes. Uh, that will help other people find us. Uh, references for today's articles will be in the uh, description of the podcast. Thank you guys all for listening, and we'll see you soon.